I suspect that uh, I know what you're thinking right now, and it might be something like, we're lit, just lit all the candles. Is it really that close to Christmas? And it's kind of strange. This is the, obviously, this Sunday being and Christmas being on Saturday, this is the farthest Christmas day is ever away from a Sunday. And so uh, it probably feels a little bit more unusual in that way. But we're glad to be able to be together here this morning. We're going to be gathering next Sunday morning. Just a reminder, it's over in the church office next Sunday morning. We still will have masks required there as well uh, on Sunday morning at the downstairs office, D, Building D, Suite 125, where we met during kind of the bulk of the pandemic before we moved back here. And so um, I do also, so there's some invitations back in the back. It's going to be a great opportunity to invite friends, invite neighbors, maybe coworkers who are in town. It's the day after Christmas, and so there might be even family that you have in town, and this would be a great spot to bring them and to spend some time together. Uh, Jonathan Carswell is going to preach the word that, sm- that morning and have it geared evangelistically, and so there'll also be a time for just some refreshments afterwards. And so please join us next Sunday morning, December 26th, for our what would be our Christmas service there the day after Christmas, again, at the church office next Sunday morning. Also, I had some time to spend time with Cam and Tori yesterday and little Bailey, and they send their greetings to you. They send their thanks to you. Her eyes were open, and she was doing well, just, just active, ready to ready to start moving around. So it was fun to be able to see her. And again, thank you for the way you're serving them as a church. They, they appreciate that, and it's a great evidence of the body of Christ coming alongside them and testifying to God's grace in your life by sharing with them that which you have. And so, uh, again, thank you for doing that, Hope. Well, let's uh, take some time. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time here in God's Word as we do each week. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for this privilege it is to come before you quietly, to rest in you, to recognize that as you have revealed yourself throughout the pages of Scripture, you are Savior. You redeem. You have come to us, God the Son, taking on flesh. Father, we pray that as we reflect on this this morning as a congregation, that you would impress these truths onto our heart, that in particular, that we would each be able to say, my Savior. We thank you for your grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, singer and songwriter Mark Lowry, he ends his concerts the same way with the same well-known song, It's a Christmas song he wrote. It's his most famous song, and he ends every single concert he does, whether it's at Christmas, whether it's in the springtime, whether it's summer or fall, the expectation is he will sing this song. And this song came about back, actually in the mid-'80s, he started having this idea after conversations with his mother. But in 1991, he had a poem that he had been working on for a few years. He thought it could make a a good song, and... um, As the poem and then the lyrics and the song took shape, it centered around 18 different questions. As to which questions made it into the actual final cut of the song, it was easy. Only the things that rhymed made it. That kind of seems like when we wrote poems as a kid, isn't it? (laughs) Like, does it rhyme? I don't know. Maybe. Like, put it in. So he, he wrote these 18 different questions. And eventually, Lowry met Buddy Green, a songwriter and instrumentalist, 
when they were on tour together. And he asked Green if he would, be, if he would consider putting lyrics or putting music to the lyrics that he had written. So to prepare, Green actually spent an entire day listening to Christmas carols that were set in a minor key. Hymns like, What Child Is This? and We Three Kings. And coming back, Green played the song in a minor key, which is what they say actually makes the song really work. It haunts you with the questions when it's put to this melody. Anybody want to take a guess what it is? Mary, did you know? That's right, exactly. Michael English recorded the song back in the early 90s, and it became an instant hit, and it's been covered by some of the biggest names in Hollywood and in Nashville. And yet, as we read in Matthew and Luke in the birth narratives, it does seem that Mary knew a lot more than is let on in that song. And, and it's actually a, part, a point that Mark Lowry, who wrote the song, he kind of acknowledges. I read an article in Christianity Today about it, and he kind of said smilingly, he knows that there are some theological issues with this song because she probably knew more, she clearly knew more than what those questions indicate. But Mary didn't know all of the specifics of what was going to happen with the son who would be born. But in the birth narratives, both she and others, as they were, as the, this son to be born was announced, he was announced in the same way. He is Savior. And so here on this last morning before Christmas, I want us to look again at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and I want us to then jump to three different passages that describe the birth of Jesus, in particular that announce the birth of Jesus, and hear how three different people are introduced to Jesus. And in each case, each of these people, Jesus is introduced as salvation or Savior. So listen to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where we've been spending our time this Christmas. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you remember, we spent the first week of Advent and first week of December talking about the fullness of time and how God has a design for his plan of salvation. Then last week, we talked about the person of the Son. God sent forth his Son, who he is from Colossians chapter 1, what is truth about his character, about his nature. And today, we're going to look at the last part of that verse. Jesus was born of woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. Jesus came to redeem. Jesus came to save. And so I want us to, th- see, to look at three different people as they introduced, they're introduced to this Savior. Joseph, Simeon, and Mary. Joseph, Simeon, and Mary. And I want us to see three points from these people. Here we are with salvation. Promised salvation, visible salvation, and personal salvation. That salvation is promised, it's visible, and it's personal. So let's look first here at promised salvation. And if we think about these birth narratives, some of which were just read here, the story is so well known to us that we can easily forget the scandal. And here's Joseph. He hears that his betrothed Mary is pregnant. He knows he's not the father. And so it says he, being a just man, resolved to divorce her quietly. An angel appears, though, tells him not to fear, and he describes this son who is to be born of Mary. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, to the Jewish ear, there would have been two very interesting things about what he's telling Joseph. First, the name of this son, it's Yehoshua in Hebrew, or Jesus in Greek, uh, but Yehoshua in Hebrew is Joshua, and it means the Lord saves. Now, we get Jesus from the Greek, but actually what the, the name that Jesus is called is actually the same as Joshua. And there are two Joshuas in the Old Testament that are a specific note that probably somebody might have had come to mind. There's the Joshua who came after Moses who del- helped to deliver his people and bring them into the promised land. And then there's the Joshua who's the high priest mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah and he's the one who helps to rebuild the temple. So both key leaders, both centering around the, par- the land as well as the temple. But this name that the angel is announcing, it even has more significance than just these strong leaders that might have immediately come to mind. He's also quoting Psalm 130, verse 8. He, that is the Lord himself, will redeem Israel from all their sins. And so here as the angel is announcing his name, it's significant, but also what he'll do, he will redeem Israel from all their sins. And to redeem has that sense to rescue or to protect. That the redeemer purchases back or redeems in order to bring it under protection. And so you might think of uh, Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth and how Boaz is her kinsman redeemer, the, the nearest relative who is able to redeem Ruth after she has been widowed and bring her into her home. So he takes responsibility for her. He protects her. And in the same way, the Savior, he is the one who will rescue. He is the one who redeems. He's the one who will protect. So Galatians 4.4, he was born under the law in order to redeem those under the law. And so, like we looked at last week, the Son of God was begotten, not created. He's sent to be born of woman. He was truly born He was born under the law in the sense that he came into the world under the law that God had pronounced judgment over all sin. Except, even though he was under the law and his parents circumcised him on the eighth day according to the law, he was not guilty according to the law because he never sinned. Because he was in the flesh but without a sinful nature like ours, He was able to be the redeemer who came from the outside in order to save. It's something we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But but just like if we were in math class right now and and you wanted somebody to, to share their work, let's show our work here. So why can he redeem? You know, Paul tells us in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And what Paul means by that is the payment that's required because of sin is death. There's no other payment that is suitable for the sin that someone has created or that has committed except for death. So Jesus, he took on flesh. He was born under the law, but was not sinful according to the law. He was from outside so that he could enter in and he could lay down his life for us. He could be a suitable sacrifice. He could be a suitable substitute for us. So when the angel speaks to Joseph and he tells him of this son to be born, 
It's more than just kind of a stop, 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 Joseph, don't divorce her. It's truth that might be revealed about the purpose of this son who will come. In his name, in his purpose, he is coming to save. You know, Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 3 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't obey the law enough. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, that is in Christ, we might have the righteousness of God. And so why can we be saved? Because there's a substitute who took our sin on himself. He paid the death, the, the payment of death that was required. He gave us that righteousness, and now we can have eternal life. But think back to that first week when we thought about in the fullness of time. Now Joseph is standing at the intersection of that which is fulfilled. And if we let our minds drift back over the pages of the Old Testament, for an Israelite to hear he will save his people from their sins is to be reminded of a God who continually pursued his people. Even when they rebelled, he pursued them to show them mercy, to show them grace. You know, really, this is a picture of mercy that he didn't have to save but he did. He didn't have to send his son. He didn't have to fix the problem that humanity had created. It's mercy, God's mercy for us. You know, Jonathan Pennington defines mercy like this. I love this definition. Mercy is the state of the heart that makes peace, shows compassion, and forgives others. So if you have a merciful heart, it's a state of the heart that makes peace, shows compassion, and forgives others. Mercy is about an action that is a generous action that delivers someone from need or bondage. And so when we hear he is one who has come to redeem, he's the one who's come to save, we need to think of the word mercy. It's the state of the heart that makes peace. God initiated that peace. He shows compassion. He shows compassion to those who are weak and wounded and sick and sore because of sin. He forgives through his son. You know, when I, when I send an email to the elders uh, that needs an action, uh, I put action item in the, the header so that we're alerted that we have a response that's needed. And in a sense, when the angel speaks to Joseph, it's as if he's putting this action item above this message. Yes, he's only saying the name of the son and what his purpose is, but bound up in the name of the son that he is the one who saves, bound up is that he is the one who is the savior, is there's also an action item built in. He's showing mercy so that we might recognize we need mercy. And so he will save his people from his sins is a picture of the mercy of God toward the undeserving. It's God moving towards us. So we could simply say this. You have a God who has promised and he has fulfilled and he is reaching out to you. So that's promised salvation. Next, let's look at visible salvation, not just with Joseph, 
but with Simeon. And in Luke chapter 2, we're introduced to Simeon, and this is after Jesus is born. And on the eighth day, he comes to be circumcised. And uh, Simeon is described as this man who's been waiting for the consolation or for the comfort of Israel. God had promised to him that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's salvation. And so when he holds Jesus, when they bring him to the temple, here's what it says. Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You know, so the way that the people often think about salvation, our temptation when we think about salvation is it's just an abstract concept. But Simeon rightly locates salvation with a person. And now that he sees him, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's looking at Jesus, and he knows he can depart in peace because God is going to accomplish the plan that he's promised. And so the question is, what does salvation mean to you? When you think of salvation, is it just some kind of higher understanding Is it some sort of self-actualization or personal enlightenment that if you could just think rightly or just have the right kind of peace, then everything would be right with the world? But Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding Jesus, and so we should connect salvation and Jesus always in our mind, such that just as clearly as we could see him with our eyes right now, when we see in the pages of scripture, we want to understand that we are seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that he is God's salvation. And so with the birth of Jesus, we've come to the beginning of the end of the story. Everything else up to this point was the just incremental movements almost imperceptible movement sometimes in these thousands of years leading up to Jesus. But now, Simeon holds Jesus and says, my eyes have seen your salvation. It's here. It's fulfilled. And so Joseph heard the, name, the angel speak of the son, and he would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And Joseph exhibited faith by following the angel's direction. Simeon exhibits faith by, looking at, by also looking at him and understanding this is the answer. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. I love this quote. Charles Spurgeon said this, the fault with a great many Christians nowadays, now this was written in the 1800s, so you gotta, you gotta pay attention when somebody says, here's what your problem is. So here's what, the great fault with great many Christians nowadays is that they have just light, only light enough to see things in a mist, They have not discerned clearly the sharply cut image of the truth. But Simeon could say, not, I think I see the salvation of God in Christ. I hope I do. Perhaps I do. But he could say, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Oh, happy are you, my dear friends, tonight, if you can distinctly and clearly see in Christ Jesus the salvation of God. I love that, just this, the sharply cut contours of salvation, that salvation is very clear, and and kind of our understanding of kind of salvation, if it's this vague notion, then it's very easy to kind of say, well, there's many ways then to salvation. There's many paths to God. 
But I think Spurgeon rightly is pointing us here to this passage and saying, no, it's very distinct. It's very clear. There is one way to God. There is one way to salvation, and it's through Jesus, the one who has come to save. So, Jesus had an, so Joseph had an angel promise salvation. Simeon saw salvation visible. Last, let's look here at personal salvation. Personal salvation. And so in Luke, when the angel tells Mary of the name of the son who will be born to her, that he shall be called Jesus, he goes on to tell her more. So listen to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 32. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, can you imagine how overwhelming, I mean, just how overwhelming this news would have been to Mary in and of itself? You know, rightfully, you might say, Mary, do you know how significant this is? Not only that she's going to be with child and she's a virgin, but as if that isn't shocking enough that this one to be born of her is going to be great. He's going to be called son of the most high. He's going to have the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. All of these enormous promises that she would have understood from the time of being a little girl that she is a part of Israel. And these are the promises that they're both to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to David. And now this angel is saying this amazing thing of the one who will be born of her. And here's her response kind of what's known as Mary's song. We're just going to look at one verse of it. She says, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, just like Joseph exhibited some measure of faith, and Simeon exhibited some measure of faith, Mary does too by knowing that there is significant to what she's hearing, significance to what she's hearing. She's a descendant and she's a recipient of the story of God from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Mary stops and just notice that one phrase there. She's rejoicing that he is God, my Savior. My Savior. Now that word mine and my, if from our very earliest days, is a word we understand. That's mine. You know, we'll take the toy from a, a sibling and we'll grab it, grab it from him and we'll justify it because it's mine. It belongs to us. We have this instinctive, from our earliest days, understanding of what mine means. And Mary is expressing praise for the amazing truth that the son to be born would somehow be connected with the salvation and deliverance of God. That she could say, my Savior. Now, of course, Mary, did you know could, you know, could she know how all of this would happen? You know, Simeon would later prophesy to her that this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign that's opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul also. Jesus will be her savior, but she'll watch him like her soul being pierced as a mother watching her child. She'll watch him hang on the cross the grief of, of a mother watching her son die, 
but eventually knowing the grief of the one who will understand that it was her sin along with others who put him there. And so she can say, my Savior, because she knows she needs a Savior. But long before she had this announcement, as we started in Isaiah chapter 40 in these great passages of comfort to God's people when they were in exile, Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2. But now, says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. I mean, is there any more comfort than being able to read in Scripture and understand that we belong to God. Before Mary could say, my Savior, God decided to make her his own. Before you can say, my God and my Savior, God points at you and he calls you by name and he says, mine. You belong to me. You have value. You have worth. And so when we see in the pages of Scripture that there is a God who came down, there is a God who redeems, we can also know it's not just salvation out there vaguely defined. It's sharply cut and it's clear and this salvation is for you because you have value, you have worth. And so to end here this morning, you know, we started with the song that asked all those questions, Mary, did you know? Can I just ask you a simple question here? Do you know who this son is? Do you know salvation that comes only from him? Will you claim him alone as your savior? If not, you can claim my savior today simply by turning to him by faith. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. And you, can, and you can pray right alongside me, just quietly in your heart, and you can be asking God, God, I recognize I need a Savior. I can't save myself. And the glorious truth that we're seeing here as we look at the birth of this son is he came for you. He came to lay down his life for you. Will you turn to him? Will you believe? And so as I pray, if that's the desire of your heart, would you pray along with me? And if you do pray, and that's something that, you've, this is a day of salvation for you. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. You can come and see me or Pastor Jared after the service. And so let me close us in prayer. And at this time, if the worship team wants to come up and we can sing together. Let's pray. God, I come to you today and I'm tired to trying to live this life on my own. I'm trying to be my own savior I'm trying to hold everything together in my life, and so I need you. I can't overcome this sin. I need to be saved. Would you save me through Jesus alone today? Would you forgive me? Father, for any here who is praying that in, your, in their heart, we know this is a glorious day of salvation where newness of life comes. We pray, Father, that as we as Christians who are here and who have trusted in Jesus, that we would be a people who this week in particular, as we spend time with family, that we have an acute awareness that we need a Savior, but that we have a Savior, and that we point readily to this Jesus who has saved us. Father, may you get the glory in our lives. 
May we point to our Savior, and maybe he be seen in our lives this Christmas. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.